Well, last week, I gave a general introduction to the book of Acts, and we'll pick up there this morning in Acts chapter 1. I likened it to a pre-flight briefing. We needed to know where we were going and why we were going there and all that the book of Acts covered. Today, we're going to actually taxi that plane and begin down the runway. We'll even, I hope, nose up as we go through verses 1 to 5. You'll remember from last week that Acts actually is, or could be called, Luke, volume 2. Same author, and Luke is binding together, as you'll see in this passage, a two-volume work. He's stitching this thing together, unmistakably so. We said last week that the book of Luke is not a mere history about the first century church. We need to remember that the book of Acts really is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about who he is, the things he taught, the things he did, and all the things in Acts that he continues to do in this world by the Holy Spirit and through his people. We talked about the fact that John Stott gave his title for this book, The Continuing Works, Words, sorry, and Deeds of Jesus by His Spirit and Through His Apostles. This book is about the invincible power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the advance of his unstoppable kingdom. Christ's invincible power and his unstoppable kingdom. This is a book that emphasizes really the inauguration of Christ's kingdom at Christ's coming and then the mighty march toward the consummation of that kingdom. Christ is the sovereign king of kings and he is building his church and nothing and no one can prevent him from doing so no matter how they try. And Luke writes to demonstrate the faithfulness of God in furthering his plan of redemption. The crucifixion was not the end of the story. And Luke wants to make sure that we understand that. He told us that in the Gospel of Luke. He expands on it now in the book of Acts. Some have called this book a book of divine necessity. You could jot that in the margin. It would be wise to do so because you're going to trace this throughout both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. This is a book of divine necessity. Things are happening because they must happen. Forty times in Luke-Acts, if we combine this volume one and two together, we read these words, it is necessary, pointing to the original blueprint that God laid out in the Old Testament that is then portrayed as it is, it is coming in the person of Christ in the book of Luke and then the book of Acts as it moves from Christ to his church in the furtherance of the kingdom by the Holy Spirit. So as we behold today the events in Acts, Luke wants us to see the invisible hand 
of God as he is working providentially to accomplish all his good pleasure. We'll make it through the first five verses today and we will divide this into two sections, the prologue and the promise. The prologue in verses 1 to 3 and the promise in verses 4 and 5. Let's read our text together. Acts 1.1. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is Luke's prologue in Luke volume 2. The first couple of verses are immediately intended to recall the opening verses of Luke's gospel. He wants to take his reader, Theophilus, and us back to Luke 1. And let's do that as we look at the first four verses. That sound of faithful fingers flipping through the scriptures, it's got to be one of the best sounds on planet Earth. God's people eager to hear God's word, right? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write this out to you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. Luke points to the prophets and the apostles, and the other authors of Scripture like Mark. And he looks at them and he says, they were eyewitnesses. There were people who saw this firsthand. Eyewitnesses are what they're always looking for in a court of law, somebody who actually saw it happen. And Luke, you'll remember, is not an eyewitness. He's a historian. He's a researcher. And so... These eyewitnesses, we're told in this text, were servants of the word. They were writing down what they perceived with their own eyes and understood by the Holy Spirit who was inspiring God's very word through their pens. They wrote down these things and then they were handed down in the form of Scripture. 
And this motivated Luke to investigate everything and to write out all that he had learned in a very clear and orderly and cogent fashion. Luke is, if you will, writing an apologetic for the Christian faith. He's writing a formal defense, a justification. He's telling Theophilus, you believe in Christ and it's right that you do so. You expect the kingdom of God and it's absolutely right to expect the kingdom of God because that's precisely what is happening. And he wants him to know it. And so he writes Luke Acts to this man, noted there by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus is a historical figure. Not much is known about him. The name means friend of God or lover of God or beloved by God, and that has taken some to interpret his name as though it was just a, a, something that Luke used to refer to a letter that was written to the church as those who are beloved by God. I believe that this is not a reference to the church, but a reference to a man. You'll note that he's called Most Excellent Theophilus. This has caused many to think that this man, this, this elevated title was given to him. He must be a ranking Roman official in some way. It may have been that he was a man of some means, and therefore he is actually financially underwriting all that Luke is researching and reporting. But he is undoubtedly a believer And Luke addresses his two-volume set to inform and to strengthen this man's faith. Now, that's the immediate audience. God obviously has us in view as Luke recorded these things. Let's go back now to Acts and chapter 1. Luke doesn't revisit everything he stated in his introduction to to Luke, He dispenses with the formality, did you note this, dropping that term most excellent from his, from the name Theophilus here. It's, there's only so much of that saccharine stuff you can take. He just gets down to business again. He doesn't need to talk about how excellent Theophilus is. He names him again. And here he stitches these narratives together. And he will summarize, really, the content, particularly of the last chapter of Luke, and then he will expand on those things that he wrote about. He says, note this, the first account, O Theophilus, I composed. That's the reference to the Gospel of Luke. And he's saying, listen, Theophilus, remember that everything that I wrote to you in volume one, I want now to build upon. I want you to see that that was not the end of the story. This is all about what Jesus, in verse 1, it says he composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that implies that what Jesus began to do in Luke, we are now going to see Jesus continue to do in Acts. So Luke's gospel account was focused on the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ from his birth to his death and his resurrection and his ascension. In Acts, Luke is going to revisit, he's going to pick up at the ascension. That's what you need to understand here as he's knitting these things together. He ends with the ascension in Luke, and now he's going to begin with the ascension in Acts, and he's stitching these two volumes together so that we might pick up the story right where we left off. I don't know how you were as a kid 
my parents allowed me to watch some television. Nothing drove me madder as a kid than to not have an episode resolve at the end. There were three words that would flash up on the screen. I was tied into this thing, and it would say, to be continued. I loathed that. That's what Luke is doing here. He leaves off in the gospel of Luke to be continued. When we pick up an ax, you know what happened. The next week you would tune into the Brady Bunch and it would go all the way back to how Peter found that little demonic thing that he hung around his neck and you guys remember that from Hawaii. Yeah, it was, you don't remember that? That's, oh yeah, I wish I had the name of it right now but I don't remember. Anyway, here's the thing. What, what did the author, well, they went back and they flashed back to what happened in the first episode to bring you up to speed. That's precisely what Luke is doing here. He's trying to jog Theophilus's memory and ours. He wants to refresh us so that we get it. So let's take a little walk back to the book of Luke. And what he says from the book of Acts. We're in the second volume now. Luke gives us first the person that the first volume was concerned with. 1-1. He says again, note it, don't miss it. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That is the person. He is the person of whom Luke wrote, and I told you last week, some people have complained about the book of Acts, that there's just really not much about Christ in this book. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. From the first verse, it is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Jesus, it tells us in Luke 24, And we'll be going there later. I might just want to wedge a piece of paper in there. But in Luke 24, in verse 19, Luke makes this statement about Jesus. He says, Jesus was mighty in word and deed in the sight of God and all of the people. What does he bring up in this reflection back except that Jesus began to do and to teach a bunch of things? Jesus is a teacher, yes, but he is also a doer. Jesus is not like the Pharisees who taught but did not do. They were hypocrites. Jesus had no need for anyone to write the words of James to him when James says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Jesus was not a forgetful hearer. He was a faithful doer of all that he taught. Jesus was, in his incarnation, obeying his Father and teaching all the things that were given to him by the Father. He is a faithful son to carry out all that the Father commanded him to do. Now note the words in verse 1, and it's, I'm sorry, right at the beginning of verse 2, it's about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. This brings us from the person to the parameters of Luke's gospel. 
What were the parameters? How much ground did Luke's gospel cover? Well, here it is. From all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. This, again, as I pointed out to you last week, is a book of transitions. And here we see a block time set apart by Luke saying, you want to know what my gospel was about? It was about the Lord Jesus Christ, all that he did, all that he taught, and I took you up all the way into chapter 24 to where he ascended. And now we're going to start again to talk about the ascension. We're going to tie these two things together, but there is a transition happening here that we need to see. There is a succession happening here in this first chapter that we need to understand. Just as Abraham passed on the responsibilities of all that God had given to him in the Abrahamic covenant down to Isaac, and then Isaac, in fact, passed all of that down to his son Jacob, just as Moses, when they got to the the promised land at the boundaries there, at the borders, had to pass down the responsibility of leadership to Joshua, just as Elijah, or Elijah passes the mantle to Elisha, so it is here. There is a baton being passed. Jesus has been running, and now the apostles must run. Again, but, but get this. Be sure you understand this. Be sure you see it. Jesus is going to continue to do and to teach, but he's going to continue to do and to teach by the Spirit and through the apostles. And so theologians will talk about Jesus leading, but he's leading and he's forwarding his kingdom from his session. Session. It's a word that refers to being seated. We, we use it, don't we? We talk about school is in session. What do we mean? Well, it's not summer break. The kids are not spread to the wind. They should be in their classrooms, seated, and studying, working, learning. We use it regarding our governing board. Congress is in what? Session. They should be at their desk, seated, and leading for the people. That's the point here. Jesus is seated where? In heaven. Why? Because he is our great high priest who's accomplished. It is finished. All that he came to do in his redemptive work. He is now going to be taken up into heaven. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he is going to to bring forward his executive authority, if you will, through the Holy Spirit. And he's going to direct and continue to further his kingdom. He's not going to do it directly. He's going to do it by means. He's going to do it by means of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. So note then the end of of verse 2 where we read that after he was taken up into heaven, after he had, note this, by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. We'll just call this, since it starts with a P and I couldn't find a better word, we'll 
call it the prescription. These is, this is Jesus prescribing, commanding, commissioning his disciples. And Luke reminds us of this. We're going to turn to Acts later and see it. Jesus is giving to his chosen apostles directives. There are 11 of them at this point. You remember Judas. He gave them orders. He gave them clear, non-negotiable directions. What, what did he prescribe for his apostles? Well, we're told that he, they had, he had given them instructions about what they were to preach. Luke 24, we'll see it. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And this is the only this is the only Great Commission passage that actually gives you the content of the commission, what you are to preach, not just that you are to go and to make disciples of all nations, not just that you're to preach the gospel to all of creation, but here what we see in Luke's account is that Jesus gives his disciples the content of what it is to preach to the nations. He says he opens up their mind to understand the scriptures and he speaks about the suffering of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and then that repentance should be proclaimed in his name. He prescribed the message. He prescribed the fact that they were to preach. He gave them then the scope of their commission that they were to go out from Jerusalem to what? All the nations. He told them, you are witnesses of these things. He wasn't saying, look, you beheld them. He's saying, no, I am calling you as my followers to testimony, to testify, to stand in the dock and declare the glory of God and the kingdom of God to the whole world. You are my witnesses. And he commanded them to stay in the city until they were clothed with power from on high. And Luke tells us that all of this was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Jesus did everything he did, beloved, in dependence upon and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We read in Isaiah 11, 2 and 3, that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is Christ the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight, the Messiah's delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. We'll see other passages in the weeks to come. This doctrine of the Holy Spirit is an Old Testament doctrine, and we are now going to see a greater emphasis and greater clarity as the kingdom is moving forward. There is this giving of the Spirit The Spirit was at work in Christ at his conception. You know that. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended and rested upon Jesus at his baptism. He was led out into the desert, depended upon the the Holy Spirit at his temptation in the wilderness. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit for his ministry. He was anointed, the Scriptures tell us, for his preaching by the Holy Spirit. Jesus casts out demons by the power of the Spirit. His righteous life and his sacrificial death, Hebrews tells us, that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. How did he do it? How did he live a sinless life? It was through the eternal Spirit. 
His resurrection, the Holy Spirit was involved in that. The whole Trinity was. But Romans 8, 11 tells us that the Holy Spirit raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So we shouldn't be surprised in the least that as we move now to this point where Jesus is about to ascend, that it is through the Spirit, by the Spirit, that he commissions and commands his disciples. And then Luke reminds that Jesus revealed himself after rising from the dead. Look at verse 3. To whom, that's a reference to these apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days. The disciples needed to be convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. By the time Jesus ascends, so just here in the next few verses, these men will have been radically transformed. They are going to go from doubt, don't forget Thomas, all the way to being so convinced they're willing to die for that truth. They had no doubts because Jesus manifested himself many, many times over the days and with many convincing proofs. And this is the only rational explanation for why the church would have continued after the death of Christ is that if these men were so convinced that Jesus both died and was raised from the dead and then ascended to the Father, that's the only reason they would have given up all that they were pursuing. You remember some of them went right back to fishing until saw the risen Christ and realized, oh, the game's not over. They had no doubts. And beloved, can I say to you that we need to be this convinced about the resurrection? You need to be this convinced. Are you this convinced about the risen and ascended Christ? If you are not convinced, you will never get off the fence. You'll never get over your timidity, your timidity to proclaim Christ with boldness because boldness comes with conviction and conviction comes with being convinced absolutely, thoroughly to the core of your toes, convinced that Jesus is real, that he did in fact die on a cross, that he was in fact buried, that he was in fact resurrected, and that he has ascended and even is in in heaven now interceding for us and, and guiding the whole ship forward, and that you need to be convinced that he's doing it through his church. Or as I said, you'll be tempted to just throw the, chair, the lazy boy up, count Jesus as some sort of fire insurance and hope that when he comes, he'll find you sitting there and you, know, you made a profession back in 92. Brothers and sisters, we're to be active in this battle. We have been called to engage it. There is a war and we are warriors, soldiers, And we need to be as convinced of this as those who laid eyes on Jesus. We need to be motivated by the vision that we see by faith in the Scriptures. Jesus manifested himself many, many times to these men. And it's all there for you to see in the Bible. 
You remember the words of Jesus to Thomas. Do you, see, do you believe now that you see? What, what did he say? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Jesus manifests himself many times over the course of 40 days and he appeared to them by many, see the words there, many convincing proofs. He didn't just prove that he was alive. He gave them multiple proofs that he was alive and the multiple proofs that he gave them that he was alive were thoroughly, resolutely, and utterly convincing. There was no doubt in their minds. In fact, that that word for convincing there speaks of things that are decisive, undeniable, conclusive, irrefutable, and indisputable. They knew that Jesus was alive like you know two plus two is four. There are no other ways around it. There was no doubt in the appearances of Jesus to them rid whatever doubt that might have been lurking in their minds. Now, who was it who saw the risen Christ? Who was it who saw the risen Christ? Who, who was it that was convinced by these proofs? Well, Paul gives us, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the most comprehensive list of, of those appearances. You could look there in verses 3 to 8. If we patch the Gospels together, we see at least 10 appearances. We saw one of them on Resurrection Sunday with Mary Magdalene. She was the first. You'll remember that. And then we saw that other women who were making their way to the tomb, they also saw the risen Christ and had an encounter with him. We're told in Luke 24 that the Lord went and and saw Peter, had a special one-on-one face-to-face with Peter on the day that he rose from the dead. We're aware from Luke 24 of the men who were on the road to Emmaus, those Emmaus disciples who saw Jesus and had an encounter with him. Why don't we just do this? You only have to flip back a few pages. Just go to John and chapter 20, and we'll look at a couple of these on our way. Mary's account there is in verses 11 to 18. And then we have the account of Jesus appearing to the 11, beginning in verse 19. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this is the same day that he rose from the dead, right? And while the doors were shut and the disciples were, note this, for fear of the Jews, they're cowering, they're panicked, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them. Here's one of the signs. Here's irrefutable evidence. The resurrected Christ showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You skip down. And you find in verse 30, John's referring to these indisputable signs. He says, therefore, many other signs that Jesus also did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You can see that these signs that were given to his apostles, his disciples, were intended what? To go beyond them, 
past them and down to us. Chapter 21, he appears to the seven disciples that are all named there while they're fishing. You can remember this. Uh, if you look at, uh, well, well, we'll pick up here. We'll pick up here right in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> Which isn't a bad place to go if you don't know what to do, right? Peter, Peter wasn't really sure what was happening at this point. He, he's going fishing and he and they said to him, we will come with you. So they went out and they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered to him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast the net and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. This is another sign. They fish all night with all of their combined fishermen, all their secrets, all their wisdom, all their attempts, and they catch nada. They get blanked. Jesus says, just chuck the net on the other side, men, and things will get much better. They haul in this massive haul of fish. He says they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he cast himself into the sea. He started swimming. But the other disciples came in in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits away, dragging the net full of fish. You know where they were dragging it. They couldn't get it up over the gunnel, Right? It was that many. In fact, we get it numbered for us somewhere in here, don't we? Yeah, so they got out, and they saw the charcoal fire, and the fish placed on it and bread, and Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. You'll notice that there were, there were fish already on the fire before they brought their fish in. Do you get the sense here of these irrefutable, unbelievable, like wow type of signs, Right? Jesus shows up again to the 11 in Galilee, and then we hear from Paul that he appeared to 500 brethren. We have that great statement, most of whom remain until now, right? Meaning, meaning what? Just going to town, talk, talk to the 500. Well, there were a few less. He said some of them had gone, gone, gone to heaven. Well, let's flip over while we're here. Uh, also, we know that Christ appeared to his own brother, James. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. Keep going back to Luke now, 24. I want you to see how all these themes are, are connected. In Acts, he's been talking about these appearances that he made to his disciples. Well, in Luke 24, we see the appearances of Christ on the road to Emmaus in verses 13 and following. 
we find out in, in verse 34, we get this statement that when they came to the 11 and those with them, who were and, and what were the 11, and what were they saying? They were saying that, look, the Lord really has risen and he has appeared to Simon. So there's an appearance to Simon. And then we, we get the, the account again of Jesus coming to the 11 in the upper room. And then we get these, this, this wonderful moment. He eats this fish in front of them, and now, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke with you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He points back to what? The Old Testament. And now he's going to open their minds to understand by the Holy Spirit things that they have not really understood to this point. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that oftentimes the disciples are a lot like us. They're a little boneheaded, and they don't really get it the first time or the third. And finally here, Jesus is going to open their minds, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The New Testament scriptures had not been written yet. He's referring to the Older Testament. This is why, beloved, we need to resist that sort of like, well, as long as I understand some stuff from the New Testament, things are pretty good. This is one book. This is one story. This is one kingdom that is marching through from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to understand the things that were written in the older book, the Older Testament, the First Testament. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer. Here's that gospel message that he's giving to them. All those truths that, that congregate around the suffering of Christ, and that's a major theme in Acts going forward, is that we as Christ's people will suffer in Christ's likeness. The disciples will suffer and the church will suffer because this is part of the way that God is furthering his kingdom. All those truths that cluster around the cross of Christ, his, why did Jesus have to suffer? Well, because God is holy. And if he were going to redeem a people for himself, he would have to do it because sinners cannot be with God. And so he had to do that through his son. And his son had to suffer and die on a cross in the place of those that he would redeem. He had to offer himself as the Lamb of God to redeem the flock of God. And then he says, and to rise again from the dead the third day. And the third day again is a reference just as God had promised all those truths that cluster around the resurrection. That Christ conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered the grave. He rose up as the firstborn among many brethren. You and I will rise. It was evidence that our justification was accomplished in full. Then he told them that repentance for forgiveness of sins, note that word repentance, my friends, the gospel in part must have a message of repentance and turning from sin. Repentance and faith are flip side of the same coin. And he says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his 
name all that he is and all that he does and all that he has accomplished to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. And he speaks these words, behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Do you see how that takes us right back to everything he's been saying in the introduction to the book of Luke? In fact, we even find the ascension here from verses 50 to 53. Turn back to Luke, I'm sorry, to Acts, and that for the last time. You can let your fingers rest, okay? We have seen... that what Luke presses down, he even speaks of the, of, of the ascension in the Gospel of Luke as though it was part of that Sunday. Well, we know that there was a 40-day window between his resurrection and his ascension. We tend to think as the church, don't we, that those two things kind of go together. We talk a lot about the resurrection. Some of you have never said the word ascension in your life. And so I'm super excited to dive into the ascension because Luke is the only one who records it of all the gospel writers. And he talks about it at the end of Luke and he will talk about it and even expand upon it in the book of Acts. So, we've seen the person, it's about Jesus. We've seen the parameters, all that Jesus did until the when he was, he was lifted up. We've seen the authoritative prescription that God commissioned his followers. We've seen the presentation and the proofs of Christ's resurrection. And in this prologue, there's one more P, and that is the priority of Jesus in his teaching. You'll notice at the end of verse 3 that he was speaking for 40 days, what? About the things concerning the kingdom of God. Don't miss that statement. This, in the beginning of Luke, I believe it's chapter 4, right there we see Jesus beginning to preach. He came for the very purpose of preaching God. And here it is again, Luke is drawing back to it saying, do you remember what Jesus was teaching? All the way through my gospel, he was preaching about the kingdom of God. This is the grand picture that Jesus was teaching about. There are eight explicit references to the kingdom of God in Acts. There are 32 in Luke. And so Jesus is going to teach them about the nature and progress of the kingdom. In fact, we saw this last week that when, the, when Luke wraps, wraps up this account in Acts with Paul, he, he's talking about the fact that Paul is there, what? Preaching the kingdom unhindered. And so he really bookends the letter with it. And again, we tend to think of the kingdom as something that is yet to come. We think of it as something that is only future. We think about the kingdom of God with some vague notion about the time in the future when Jesus is going to reign and, and everything's going to be good. And we don't really understand much more than that. We, we need to understand more than that. We're endeavoring to, to make, make ourselves aware of what this kingdom is, what it is about, where does it come from and where is it going? Who gets in? When we think kingdom, we think heaven. When we think kingdom, we think eternity. When we think kingdom, we think New Jerusalem. That is part of the manifestation 
of the kingdom. We might even call that the consummation of it. But there's much more to it than that. Who is the greatest teacher of all time? The Lord Jesus Christ. How many days did he have to teach on the kingdom of God? Forty. (laughs) Forty days, which really was expansion on all that he'd already been teaching them for three years. If a master teacher takes 40 days to have to teach this, we, we probably should think about it for more than 40 minutes, right? We need to really grasp this. That, by the way, that master class on the kingdom of God for 40 days, I wish I were enrolled, don't you? Can you imagine what it must have been like to sit at the feet of the one who planned, purposed, inaugurated, he's going to bring it all to a conclusion. He knows the kingdom inside and out. He's got all the details, and here he was spilling it out to these followers of his who would then take the message forward And that's the wonder of it, my friends, is that we can see all these things unfolded again in the scriptures. They've been written down for us. Well, at this point, the disciples have some really significant misconceptions about the kingdom of God, which is why Jesus has to correct it. They think that the kingdom of God was something that was coming to Israel, and it was coming to Israel you know, while Jesus was on the earth and he was going to lead some sort of political movement to overcome Rome and finally establish that, that earthly kingdom that, that they so anticipated. They had some things that they did not understand. And you can only imagine how disillusioning it must have been when they hooked their wagon to Jesus thinking, surely this is the king, and they had that right. But all of a sudden, their king is dead. And the whole thing has just collapsed. Now what happens to the kingdom? And now Jesus is going to follow through with what he told them all the way along. Look, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. And they're wondering, undoubtedly, what, what is going to happen to the kingdom now? Think of the questions they must have had. How is God's saving plan for Israel going to work its way out if you're leaving? How does your death and resurrection and now your departure going to fit into this whole thing? And what about the timing of the kingdom? They're going to actually ask him that in verse 6. And what about the nature of the kingdom? I mean, was this supposed to be a literal physical kingdom? Or is this thing a spiritual kingdom? Or is it somehow a a mix of both? Is this a visible kingdom or is this something that's invisible? What about the nations? What about the Gentiles? How do they fit into this thing? What about our future? You told us we'd be ruling and sitting on some thrones. How does one enter the kingdom of God? When are you going to return? You can imagine all the questions they must have had. And so over the course of 40 days, he gives this master class, and he gives them enough to know all that they need to know to carry on the work. And that is the prologue to Luke's first chapter here in Acts. Now, I want you to see the very brief look at the promise. I told you we're going to break this into two parts, the prologue and the promise. And this will be quick. 
The promise is found in verses 4 and 5, and this is still technically part of his prologue. He's still binding together these two volumes. He's talking here about past history, and he says in verse 4, and gathering them together, Luke's giving a report, he, Jesus, commanded them, the apostles, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Now, it was vital that they not leave Jerusalem, right? That makes sense. This was the starting point. This was ground zero for the gospel. It was to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and out to the uttermost ends of the earth. It was, as Paul said, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so if I can take you back to Luke 24, 49 again, where Jesus is recorded by Luke as saying this, listen, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father, but you are to stay in the city, that's Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power. Whatever this giving of the Spirit is, whatever this baptism in the Spirit is, Whatever else it may mean, and we are going to talk about the immersion of the Spirit as we move on, whatever else it is, it is this, certainly, that without the Holy Spirit, these men had no power and no capacity to accomplish the purposes of God in their own strength. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do what? Nothing. They had the truth. He'd been teaching it to them for 40 days. They had the power. I'm sorry, they, they had, they had their, their mission, their commission. They had their marching orders, if you will. But they did not have divine power that was necessary to carry out the mission. And so Jesus says, men, sit tight. How long did they have to sit tight? Ten days. We always think, well, yeah, oh, all right, I can wait till you get back. It'll, it'll yeah. a few hours, right? No, ten days. You're going to wait. Ten days. You're going to wait. And I don't know all the reasons for the timing of ten days, but if you just flip over a page in Acts to Acts chapter two and verse thirty-three, we're given at least one clear answer as to why they had to wait. Notice verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. This is Peter preaching. Verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this which you both see and hear. This is the day of Pentecost. This is the day of the Spirit coming down with power upon. This is the promise being fulfilled. And Peter says the reason you have to wait for it is because Jesus must ascend and be exalted to heaven. It is there that the Father gives the Spirit to the Son then to pour out upon his church. That's why they had to wait. John chapter 7 and verse 39, 
we read this, that the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John chapter 16 and verse 7, but I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling them, I'm going to go away, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised, and I am, I am going, I'm going back to heaven. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the advocate, the spirit, will not come to you, but if I go I will send him to you. Do you see that Jesus had to go first? One commentator, I love this, he says, the Holy Spirit is the executive power of the exalted Christ. You know what executive power is. It's the power of a CEO to tell people you go and you do and you accomplish and get this done and you, you have power to, to send people to do what they must do for the company. Jesus here is sending the Spirit as his executive power to be given what? To every follower of Christ. You have just multiplied the ministry of Christ. You have multiplied the power of Christ. No wonder it's better that the Spirit come and and fill Christ's people. More to proclaim by the power of the Spirit. More to minister in the name of Jesus by the Spirit. Now you'll note back in verse 4 that it is the promise of the Father, but it comes from the mouth of Jesus. It says this, the promise of the Father which he said, Jesus said, you heard from me. Peter referred to it in verse 33 of chapter 2 as the promise of the Father. In verse 39, he says, this promise is for you and your children. What promise? The Holy Spirit. Why does he keep talking about it as a promise? Why didn't he just say the Holy Spirit's going to be given? Because he's trying to draw us back to remember that what? God is at work. God is faithful. God made promises in the past. He is bringing them to pass. Don't get in the way of this freight train because you cannot stop it. It's beautiful. Over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus taught them about the coming of the Spirit and that, they would, that he would come from the Father. You remember these words from Luke 11 and verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give, what? The Holy Spirit to you. And in these verses, we see the Trinity, don't we? Did you mark that? We see the Father making a promise. We see the Son speaking that promise to his disciples. And we see this word promise, which is a direct reference to the Spirit, as you can see in the next verse of Acts chapter 1, in verse 5, when he talks about being baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right from the very beginning of the book of Acts, and a greater prominence is going to be given to this Holy Spirit as Jesus departs. He will be the means by which the church accomplishes Christ's work. Christ is the head, we are his body, and by the Spirit there is a connection that we have so that the body works out the will of the head. 
Do you see how all this comes together? It's exciting. Things are not haphazard, are they? And this is yet another transition as we see it, this progression forward, the forwarding of the kingdom through his people by the Holy Spirit. He's still working, but there's a shift going on in the way that it's all going to happen. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is a reference back to Luke chapter 3 and verse 16 where John is preaching at the Jordan and he says these words, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming. He was the forerunner, remember? He was the one who preached Christ, proclaimed Christ, readied the way for Christ. He had this baptism of repentance. I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, there's a lot to be said about baptism, but again, we'll, we'll restrain ourselves and leave that for days ahead. Here, here's the point. This is, this is the thing. Jesus is pointing them to the fulfillment of that spiritual baptism of which the prophets had spoken. Jesus wants us to see, Luke wants us to see, that everything that the Father has promised in the past is being accomplished. Things are moving forward. They're going to be realized. The Father is always faithful to his promises. The kingdom of God is moving ahead, and it is picking up pace. And all of it, my friends, begins with the ascension. That is the, this is the thing that Luke wants to get to. We, we have encountered all, all, of the, all of the looking back and all of the connection to the previous book, and now he's going to bring us to the ascension where Jesus is going to return to his glory to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And as I told you, Luke is the only gospel writer who expressly records the ascension and he's going to expand it in Acts, and it's this very, 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 very profound event for which, frankly, we have lost appreciation. It usually just gets blended in to the resurrection as if Jesus sort of rose from the dead and just sort of went. It's not the way it went down. Well, I trust you're as excited as I am to look at it, and we will look at it in the week. Let's stand together. The Lord Jesus Christ. Is the foundation of all that we've been talking about. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's stand together as the music team leads us. I'll close in prayer. Our great God and King, you have made eternal plans, plans from eternity past that you have committed yourself to fulfill, and they are glorious indeed. Lord, we look forward to that grand day when the consummation of all things will come and we will dwell with you on high, with the church, with the saints, with those purchased by the blood of our Redeemer. Lord, we are your people. We want very much, Lord, to actively fulfill all that you've set out for us to do. I pray again that as we look into this great book that you have authored through the pen of Luke, 
Lord, that we would be stirred, stirred to obey, stirred to be warriors, stirred to be soldiers, stirred, Lord, to honor you with our lives. As we sang earlier today, that you would take our hands and our feet, our voices, take all of us. Lord, take all of us and make them your own. May we serve you with heart, soul, mind, and strength, we ask, and all for your glory. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.